uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. Hello out there on the internet. I'm Emily Lipstein. And I'm Matthew Galt. And this is Cyber. It's time for a new history of the internet, one that focuses on the recent revolutions that define the world that we all live in. Social media has changed the way that many of us live and work. It's a world defined by a new economy of creators and influencers. The new media is here, and it's extremely online. And that's the title of the new book from Taylor Lorenz, which is the untold story of fame, influence, and power on the internet. Lorenz is a a columnist for the Washington Post, and she's here today to answer all of our questions about why Vine failed, why Logan Paul is dancing with presidential candidates, and what the future holds for everyone who lives and works online. Taylor, welcome. Thanks for having me. I think it's Jake. If you're talking about Vivek, it was Jake Paul. That's that's my bad. I got the Pauls mixed up when I wrote the intro. And it's funny funny that you say that, because as I was writing it, I was like, Wait a minute, which Paul was it that he danced with? I'm sure it's fine. I'm sure I got it right. And I did not. One of the Pauls. They're very easy to confuse, honestly. They really are. I, I, will say, I was, yeah. Yeah. I will say Logan has slightly different politics than his brother. He did defend Black Lives Matter and has been sort of outspoken about social justice stuff. So there we go. <laughs> so can you define, like, for. For, for for people that are uh, maybe a little bit more offline uh, who are listening to this podcast, can you define what it means to be extremely online? What, what do you mean yeah. by that? <laughs> yeah, I would say it's like, I mean, it's sort of this term that arose in the 2010s um, to speak to people that are kind of very plugged in, very like up with, uh, you know, whatever's going on online. I think we're all increasingly extremely online, which is why I used it for my book title. Cause I think, um, my book is basically about the first 20 years of the social web and kind of how it evolved. And, um, I feel like it's sort of, we've all progressively become extremely online. Yeah. I mean, the, the specific timeline of this book for me, um, has felt like a personal attack. So thank you. Um, cause it really spans my experience of the internet. Um, I I've worked in social my entire career. Um, I've been online since honestly, like I probably before I probably should have been. Um, but you know, it really feels like as I read this book, it was just like a, this is your life reminded of all of these characters of the past, like emerging, like, you know, this is this is some sort of ghost of Christmas past situation. Um, it's it's wild how much has happened in. I know it's twenty years, but what feels like an incredibly fast paced time. Yeah, it's it's there's just so much that's happened, and and I'm so glad that it felt that way to you because that's kind of how I wanted people to read it because I think we all like lived through these moments, especially those of us that use the internet a lot, but we don't you know, it's such recent history and we haven't had time to kind of go back and analyze it and contextualize it and really think about it. A lot of stuff it's like happened when maybe like we were still in school or like we weren't like a hundred percent kind of like paying attention to things. So um, yeah. And also hindsight is twenty twenty, and, and also, re, you know, just re-examining, I had an excerpt come out this week about one part, this woman, Julia Allison and kind of what she was put through and, um, it's just crazy. Like there were, there was a lot that would happen that I don't think would even happen today. 
Exactly. Yeah. And we're going to return to her a little bit later. Um, but I really did want to ask you why you chose to start the timeline of your book where you did. Because I've read a lot of like internet history books that tend to start, you know, maybe 10, 15 years earlier than the history that you're giving, talking about Usenet, talking about MUDs, really going into like those early, I would say startup if that didn't have other uh, connotations, but almost, you know, like stone age of the internet. Um, so I'm curious, why did you just choose to start your book in the age of, you know, the early age of blogging, but not like the beginning of blogging? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, it is an internet history book, but it's really about the rise of the social internet and the social web. So yes, I mentioned sites like Six Degrees and The Globe and these like sort of very early like AIM, you know, chat rooms, like these sort of early social things that were happening in the 90s. But the social web didn't meaningfully start until the blog ecosystem in the early 20s or in the early aughts. And especially when you're talking about people building audiences online, again, it just didn't start until like the bloggers. And even, even so it didn't even really start until kind of like, I would argue the, the mommy bloggers really pioneered exactly. this sort of this um, personality driven model of media and kind of building an audience around yourself, commodifying your life, um, monetizing it. So that's kind of where the story begins for the story that I'm trying to tell. Um, but I'm, I'm with you. I mean, I love those books about the nineties and tech and all of that, but it just, it wasn't, it wasn't like relevant to this story. So I start with sort of like, I would say the dawn of blogging right at the turn of the millennium and kind of um, that first, you know, yeah, that first era. Totally. And like, I think that something that really, um, is interesting to me is how much your book focuses on, you know, the individual and like, actually, you know, you talk a little bit about being pseudonymous online, you know, various accounts stuff, you know, um, the, the various like NYC socialite stuff, the at New York city that you talk about in the, in the early Instagram chapters, but it really, this era of of social media really is like a line of demarcation between the pseudonymous internet being the main way that people communicated and were you know social on the internet to you as you know a person you know whether you're um whoever you are you are the brand exactly yeah and also just like i think it, you're the brand. And then also just like you start to see things in the early aughts as well. I mean, I also get into like early MySpace and the MySpace stars and kind of, and I talk about reality TV, like so much was happening in culture alongside the internet that was cha also changing our notions of fame and media. You had reality TV boom, which I think changed people's understandings of fame and what it meant to be a TV star and all of that. Um, and then you had what was the other thing I was just thinking of? You had, I mean, you had so many sort of like economic things happening. Um, and then, yeah, you, then you had the, oh yeah. Then you had things like MySpace and Facebook and all these things that were sort of like more consumer friendly ways of, um, you know, encouraging people to like kind of put themselves online and, and have an identity online. Yeah. Matt, there was someone that you remembered that you had totally forgotten about when you were reading this book. Oh, lonely girl. One, one, five. Is it one, one, five or another one? Oh, what was the, what, you're going to have to remind tequila, me. Tequila, tequila. Oh no, oh, tequila, yeah. tequila. 
like what a character that defines like the two thousands era, uh, like celebrity. I'm just, I'm sitting here thinking about all of those bad reality shows that were churned out on VH one, uh, and MTV that I would, that I would sit and watch. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know, like it would be something that would be nice to have on in the background while I was doing other things or doing laundry. It was just kind of roll over your brain, but I would, I would absorb all this stuff. And it's funny reading your book. I was like, I don't, uh, all, there's this whole 10 years of my life that I, that I only remember like when it's prompted to me, <laughs> like all yeah. of these characters, it's kind of, it was fascinating I- to, uh, see Tila, see Tila Tequila's name, uh, and then go back and have a half memory of been like, didn't she get involved with Nazism in some way? And then she's got a very long, uh, a long chunk about it in her, on her Wikipedia page, which is always a good sign. Always a great sign. Yeah. Another thing I remembered, I was going to say too, uh, another thing, and I don't know if Matt, you remember this era too, but the aughts were also the first time party photos were being put online at scale. And so you also had a lot of like cults of personalities like Corey Kennedy or these other people that like, and a lot of socialites, I talk about this too with Patrick McMullen, like basically people developing cult followings, like because of their role in party, like they were featured very heavily in certain party photography websites. Yeah. It was kind of the, it was strange to me, like living in North Texas at the time to watch portions of like New York city, media and scene culture kind of spread throughout the rest of the country. It's like, did any, did anyone outside of Manhattan need to know who Paris Hilton was? Well, we did. <laughs> we did. Um, and it's, it's funny. Cause at the time I was like coming out of like coming out, it was a very nineties kid. Um, having like early fight club brain, which is just like a terrible <laughs> thing for a young man in Texas to have. Uh, going into a world where the idea that all of that stuff was deeply uncool was going to be kind of just upended, uh, and the culture was going to completely change. Something that you you were as the changing nature of the celebrity, uh, something I think is really interesting that I hadn't thought about until I'd read your book and had like started having this conversation is that there's there, there was this idea that to sell out, which is like completely ancient now to sell out and pursue celebrity was like this empty thing. And also uh, that it was impossible that you had been sold a lie that you could grind it out and become famous. Uh, and there were a lot of people who had started to be disillusioned right at this, right at the time that the tools to actually make that possible, like came around, like it is hard work and there is like quite a bit of luck involved, but um the a person that is good at it and it good at using these tools can in fact turn themselves into a celebrity, right? Yeah. Yeah. I know this is more of a comment than a question. <laughs> it's just yeah, something no, that I occurred totally to me. Agree. I agree with everything you said. Um yeah, it was really fun to kind of like revisit that era. And and also there was these, I mean, just as you're talking about sort of these notions of celebrity, like um, you know, there was this idea that you couldn't pursue it and people that did pursue it through the internet were like just lambasted for it you know like it was like oh no fame is something that's bestowed on you if you seek it you know you're bad and like you're you know like it should be from hollywood and it should you know some executive should spot you at the mall and you know you're plucked out of nowhere. It's like, you can't grind online and try to get famous, which is interesting. And a lot of, I mean, a lot of um, 
early internet stars, their goal was actually not fame at all. A lot of it happened very serendipitously, especially like early YouTubers. Like it was a lot of sort of viral videos of people that were like, oh, I guess I'll put, you know, I talk about um, the chocolate rain video and like Taze on day. It's like, I guess I'll put my music online. And like suddenly, you know, like 4chan has like made me a hero and is blowing me up. And now I'm hugely popular and have a big song. And so it's like, it was a lot of kind of serendipitous fame. And then, yeah, then you did have people that really sought it out and really worked hard to try to build their brand. And they, the, the traditional media, like just vilified them for it. I mean, a lot of the mommy bloggers, um, when Heather Armstrong ran, uh, she was sort of the most famous of, of that group. And she put blogs on her ad and she put ads on her blog in 2004, which is so standard. And her post about it reads like, you're like, why are you explaining why you have to put ads on here? Like, of course you do, you know, this is your full-time job. And, and she was just, I mean, brutalized for that decision saying that, you know, motherhood is sacred. And how could you monetize a blog about motherhood? You know, you're so horrible. And the media, especially traditional media was just so cruel to her. Into, yeah. I mean, it's, and it's really set into the Heather Armstrong story too, right? Yeah. Just this year. She, yeah. She passed away this year. She um, took her own life. She, she had struggled. I mean, so many of those women um, really struggled with mental health issues. And I think part of the reason a lot of them were online actually was for community and, uh, you know, to kind of express themselves and, and talk about addiction and things like that. And so it was very sad end, but Rebecca Wolf, who's also in my book is, is still around and thriving. And there's other mommy, mommy bloggers that, you know, like made it out alive somehow. I want to, uh, we've, we've talked a little bit about the focus of the book and how it's different from a lot of other histories of the internet and technology that have come out. And I want to pull this one quote, uh, and get you to kind of talk about it a little bit. While the mythology around Silicon Valley featured young men who could see the future better than everyone else, what the rise of social media thus far had proven was that nearly all of those young men had been wrong. Uh, in what ways were those young men wrong? And what is the traditional story that you're kind of blowing up here? Um, yes. Can you say that one more time? Sorry, what, what was the the first part? Uh, uh, what? I, yeah. <laughs> Uh, social media thus far had been proven that nearly all of those young men had been wrong. Um, what are, what were they wrong about? I guess. Essentially. What was the first part of that? What, what is the, <laughs> so, I'm so sorry. sorry. All right. So while the mythology around Silicon Valley featured young men who could see the future better than everyone else, yes. what the rise of social media thus far had proven was that nearly all of those young men had been wrong. Um, yes. can you tell okay. me a little bit more about the myth that you're exposing and the ways in which that myth is wrong? Yes, definitely. I'm so sorry. No, it's all right. And it was from, um, there's like all these random, and I'm like, I talk about men a lot. Like where, which one? Um, yeah, well, a huge theme of my book is, is just like, it's, it's that Silicon Valley doesn't know what they're doing and they need, they, they take credit for everything after the fact. And, um, especially, you know, I think when we consume stories about the rise of these social platforms, often they're through things like the social network or like these books that kind of like, glorify like the founders. I mean, I was thinking of the other two big tech books that I'm up against this fall, which is like Walter Isaacson's biography of Musk and then the SBF uh, Michael Lewis book. And it's like, you know, there's all these books that are, that just focus on these like powerful men and like, did they know what they were doing? What do you know? 
I, I think in those two cases, I, they really, it's obvious that they didn't know what they were doing or don't know what they're doing. But, um, but yeah, with Silicon Valley, there's all these like narratives that are really pervasive. And um, so I just wanted to kind of talk about the fact that actually, um, you know, Silicon Valley, first of all, was extremely hostile to the influencer content creator industry for literally 20 years, only in 2021, which is partially what triggered me to write this book. Like, did they start to even talk about it? And then they wanted to invest in it. They just invested in the dumbest stuff alive because they had literally not been paying attention to the entire industry for decades. Um, and yeah, they never know. They never know how their, you know, products will be used. And I think that I talk about that so much in my book. Like, you know, these platforms don't start out the way they intended. Um, they just usually have no, they, they don't anticipate kind of how they'll evolve. Um, they often reject, you know, the user base that they've cultivated on their own apps, like with Vine, you know, it's like the founders had this idea of what they wanted the app to be. And when people started using it in other ways, they were really sort of hostile to that. So yeah, I just, I hate the whole Silicon Valley, like boy genius myth. And I think it's <laughs> a lie. And um, I wanted to talk about that, I guess. Yeah, we'll definitely get back into de- into the death of Vine uh, towards the end of our conversation, because, you know, we, we all lived through that. But I feel like I learned some things about it that I didn't quite realize what led to it um, in the book. So that was really helpful. And we'll talk about that more. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about something that you talked about at the beginning of our conversation. Um, what was Sex on the Hilltop? Yes. Um, Sex on the Hilltop was Julia Allison's um blog uh, that she started actually in college that was kind of like, I mean, at the time, Sex in the City um, uh, was like ascendant, you know? Um, and so I think it was sort of like her tongue in cheek kind of referenced that. And it was just, yeah, it was like a blog about, you know, being a young girl on a college campus and kind of her life. So t- what ended up happening? Oh, sorry. What ended up happening with her... Um, with that blog and the way that she blew up and the reaction to it. Yeah. Well, so it blew up um, and there was a lot of hostility to it. I mean, people were pretty intense about it, but it also made her really popular. You know, she, um, she sort of started to develop an audience in, in college. It was very small. It wasn't, you know, she didn't really develop. It was a sort of a thing, but it wasn't really till after college that she like really developed her actual blog that made her famous, but she did have this blog in college that was kind of, um, had gotten her some attention initially. Mm. I think cause there was this fascination with her dating life. <laughs> and what, what was the price that she paid for it? Like what's the arc of her story? I know that the, well, so, this was all just yeah. segmented in Rolling Stone, right? Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah. If you want to read more, definitely check out my Rolling Stone excerpt. Um, so yeah, so that was this college blog that she had that was kind of like, you know, popular for like a minute at school, but like ultimately was not really anything. And then she graduates and she can't get a job in New York media because it's impossible to get a job in New York media even back then. Um, and so she starts blogging, she starts blogging on Tumblr and, um, she starts creating video content, um, which she was putting on Vimeo. And then she signed a deal with YouTube, 
um, next, next new networks. Um, and so she starts blogging a lot and like, she starts like a lifestyle blog, which she called life casting, where basically she would talk about everything about her life as like a young woman in New York city. So party recaps outfits. She did these things called head to toes where she, um, you know, like would basically essentially tag, but not tag because you couldn't tag, but like sort of describe everything that she was wearing that so people could shop her posts. Um, she had a blog with her, you know, a guy that she was dating for a while. Like they had this couple's blog, like things that today actually would be very totally commonplace. Like a couple's account on TikTok is like completely, there's zillions of them, but like at the time were people were like livid that she was doing this and putting herself out there. I think also because she was like very feminine. Um, and yeah, she was just, she was, she was destroyed by it. Like her sort of original sin, um, and why the media went so viciously against her in the beginning was, um, because she had gone into the comments of Gawker posts and she would promote links to her blog in the comments because people were spending a lot of time in the comment sections back then. And she thought, Oh, well, I will just, link to my, you know, responses or things that I'm writing about related to the, to these Gawker posts, like to get promotion, right? Again, something that is, seems so commonplace today. Um, but at the time she was called, you know, like a fame whore, um, you know, just relentless self promoter and did it. And it was this notion of like, you can't f- seek fame. Like, who do you think you are? You know, that, that you, you know, that you have an audience and that you've developed an audience. Like, who do you think you are? Basically, like, you silly little girl. And so she was, she became the target of, um, I think one of the worst misogynistic smear campaigns of thoughts. In what, uh, I mean, I don't, I mean, I don't want to ruin the arc of the story, but like, what becomes of her in the end? Like, how is she doing now? Um, well, she quit the internet. I mean, what becomes of her is unfortunately like what happens to a lot of women that have to deal with these sorts of, you know, vicious campaigns against them, which is, um, she sort of had to quit the internet and she did about 10 years ago. She just quit the internet and sort of stepped away and stopped using it. And, um, now she was living in LA for a really long time. And then now she's, um, actually at Harvard Kennedy school. Um, and she lives in Boston and is, has a very, very different life. And it's, it's a real shame, honestly, because when you go back and read what she was writing about tech and media, every single thing came true. She was so ahead of her time. It's actually insane. Like every single thing that she described has happened. Like she basically predicted TikTok. I, I can't even explain to you how That's crazy. Wild. And this woman was so and and I have to say I was so angry the day that it went out in Rolling Stone because I saw people there were people um online men that were still uh, you know like bashing her like there you know there were all these people and and all other people that were like well I've never heard of her and I'm like you've never heard of her that's the point that's the point yeah written out of history if this woman was a man she would have gotten millions in venture funding and probably you know been the first to fund a lot of major companies, you know, like she's, mm-hmm. she, but, but of course she wasn't, she was literally driven off the internet by misogyny and hate. And I think it's just the story of so many women <laughs> on the internet and, and just like, you know, what we could have had because we have these bumbling idiots in Silicon Valley that can barely, that refuse to recognize like what's right in front of them. And then you have people like Julia and other women that saw the future decades ahead, you know, and 
tried to take advantage of that and were just vilified. I can yeah. this for hours. It makes me so angry. <laughs> I mean, I, I understand that. Like there are the, there are people that, you know, were ahead of their time and really being the vanguard with purpose, you know, trying to break in and, and testing these new mediums out and be, being very excited about it to see what it all did. And then there were also people that kind of stumbled into it. Like we were talking about earlier. Um, I'm remembering, you know, that stumbled into it, I guess, on one side, you have the people that are accidental viral videos. Um, I'm thinking very much of, while I was reading your book, remembering Lazy Sunday, which um, for those of you who might not remember um, uh, the Lonely Island, they were did stuff with SNL, do stuff with SNL. Um, one of the first viral YouTube videos was someone recording their TV with the clip on it and just posting it on YouTube. Um, I don't think that they were doing that necessarily to go viral as much as it was just to, you know, have a repository for this, for this clip. Um, but mixing that with a little bit of, you know, reality TV stuff where you had things like the bad girls club, what we're talking about, Tila Tequila, the simple life, et cetera. Um, I'm remembering watching the soup a lot in, you know, middle school. Um, which I don't know why I was watching that in middle school, but that's a, a story for another time. Um, how did early virality work? Yeah, um, it's so funny. I also used to watch The Soup and The Soup was just like kind of like it was this like weird show that was really, yeah, kind of like aggregated everything, I think, at the time. Exactly. Um did you say how did early virality work? Yeah. How did like, how did, you know, people go viral? How were yeah. people, how were, you know, now we think about memes spreading like wildfire on the internet or viral videos. It feels very natural because we're all kind of plugged into this ecosystem, but you know, <laughs> I feel very silly. It's almost like, you know, the pony express of early memes, you know, yeah. how did these things get out there? How did people know about, you know, keyboard cat? Yeah. Well, it was through early sharing. I mean, very early, it was like link sharing, especially with YouTube videos. You would share the link with somebody else to watch, like, look at this funny video. There weren't algorithms that could surface content back then. So it was, you had a lot of things like Dig and Delicious and these sort of like web discovery tools that would help you discover content and kind of share content. And then also blogs played a really key role in that discovery um, where whether it was like a Tumblr blog or like a blog spot or whatever, people would sort of curate things around the internet. Um, and sort of that's how things would go viral. I do sort of talk about this actually with Tazon Day and like 4chan at that time, like 4chan, it was not really the 4chan that we think of today, but early 4chan would like sort of manufacture virality often around people that they felt were sort of like outcasts or like, they would sort of ironically want to like boost somebody that like wouldn't like someone like, you know, Adam Boehner that did Tayson Day. Like he's sort of somebody that's like outside the, the realm of Norn's mainstream. And so they were like, oh, like this would be funny kind of to like make him a star. And that's sort of like an F you to this entertainment ecosystem, you know, that would never make these people stars. And so, yeah, it was a lot of like kind of, um, it was just a lot slower too. I mean, like a, viral like something that was viral would last for like months you know because it took that long to like make its way through the internet so 
it was really interesting just going back and reading things like how slowly that evolution, like how slowly it, it took for some of these things to take off that were like, oh yeah, that viral video. It's like that viral video was like viral for six months, you know, like <laughs> something that would never happen today. Um, You mentioned 4chan and I want to drill down on this just briefly because I think it's important. Um, Can you talk a little bit about the what 4chan kind of used to be and how it was an engine for the spread of a lot of this viral stuff. So I think like it being very different than what 4chan is now, I think is really important. Uh, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 4chan. I mean, it, so it emerged obviously as this sort of like message board um, thing for people that don't know what 4chan is basically message board system. Um, and in the aughts, it was it was a place for kind of like weirdo, like internet people. And it was very like pro-internet. Like the the sort of mentality on it was very like sort of anti like the system, like especially Hollywood and the entertainment system and kind of the media in, in a sense, but not like the way that we think of anti-media today. It was more just like, we're the little guys on the internet, sort of in the trenches every day. And like, we're going to stick to the man by like, making this song about systemic racism viral, which they definitely did not realize that's what it was about at the time. But like, it was about sort of like insurgent power, but it wasn't politicized in the same way. Yes, there was like political content on there, but like it just as a community was very different um, than, than it, it hadn't been sort of like as radicalized. I'm sure there were radicalized, you know, sort of, streaks of it but but the overwhelming vibe of it was not was not that way um and it's and it it played a really important role i think in early virality because they would scrape the internet and they would sort of go around and like find these little like gems and then blow them up and um i mean again like things like dig and, and these and delicious also like did sort of played a similar role but it was it wasn't that wasn't like a community or forum it was more like um, these sort of like bookmarking and discovery tools. Um, but yeah, it was a, di- it was very different for Chan. Um, and it's just, it's, it's sad because I think also that was this era of the internet where there was so much optimism and it was sort of funny. And I mean, even you mentioned lonely girl 15 earlier, like, um, you know, back then when they were casting, it was this, it was, it was a story about this girl and her best friend, this guy who was like, maybe, you know, love interest, um, they were both supposed to be teenagers. And when they were casting the young boy, the casting description said no one attractive because it was it was totally unbelievable or they figured it would be totally unbelievable for an attractive young boy to be spending time in, on YouTube because YouTube was like for nerds and weirdos. And like, so it's just very funny, you know, because now, of course, we have this Internet that's dominated by like, you know teens that are like look like backstreet boys or something you know um but at the time it was still it was still like internet culture was secondary to mainstream culture i'm just thinking of like every like you know early aughts teen movie where the girl takes off her glasses and suddenly (laughs) she's hot and i'm just like damn and that's the story of when the internet turned from like nerds in their little corner to oh yeah we're also real people um Justin Bieber exists etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah um but yeah i actually you know wanted to talk a little bit about tumblr and this is you know forgive me this is very self indulgent um you know i was on tumblr for a very long time and like very like 
it, it was interesting to just see the transition from you know, less curated kinds of social media presences or ones that are less curatorial in nature to that curated sense that we see on Tumblr and then later on, on, you know, to an extent on Twitter where you're retweeting things, um, to an extent on Instagram when you're doing meme pages and that kind of a thing. But let's, can we talk about that a little bit? Tumblr? Yeah. I mean, Tumblr was my favorite era of the internet. And I was so thrilled to be able to write about it because I mean, I personally owe like everything in my life to Tumblr. It's like what got me into everything. So I think Tumblr was like the perfect actual, I've thought about this so much, but it was just such a perfect like training ground for what the internet became. I think like just the way that it was sort of, um, I mean, overrun with fandom and kind of like the real time news aspect of it. And like the way that sort of like different narratives around celebrities would emerge or whatever. It was just this sort of like early version of just, yeah, like the early reflection of kind of the broader internet. And, um, especially in the, in the late aughts and the early 2010s, it had a lot of power and people today don't really remember that or realize that, but like every major media company was on Tumblr. Like Tumblr was these single serving Tumblrs, like Veronica D'Souza's, um, you know, binders full of women, right. In 2012, like that ended up like being this massive thing that became this meme because she seized on this comment, um, you know, that I think it was Mitt Romney made. Um, yeah, it was. And yeah, and like, to, but made a Tumblr out of it because you could spin up these single serving Tumblrs very easily around different themes. And so it was this like, it was just this like transformative platform that never could really seize seize on its power. Like it was sort of like mismanaged, unfortunately, because it got bought by Yahoo. And I know. And then they got rid of all the porn on there, which, you know, honestly tanked the platform. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, that was the dumbest thing they've ever done. I yeah, it's very sad. Um, But yeah, someone in the chat on Twitch is talking about the fuck yeah tumblers, which I think is like a perfect microcosm of what you're talking about, which really just like hooking on to one thing in particular. I think you you have the example of sharks as one of the things in your book. Um, but also there's, you know, started to change from, you know, going very broad, like sharks to menswear as one example. Yeah. You know, and really it's like, okay, now you're getting not just fans and not just, you know, people that like sharks, which how do you monetize a shark? Um, who's to say? Two, you could get brands well, then coming in and being like, oh, we have a space on this nascent social network. That's what Shark, I mean, Shark Week, I, I think Shark Week partnered with Fuck Yeah oh, Shark. Did they? I think, I feel like they did. Um, well, that is how you monetize sharks then. You can monetize anything right. on the internet. Um, I have a whole like chart um, about sort of like from uh, showing the rise of the Tumblr, um, fuck yeah, Tumblr era um, that they printed. Actually, it was it's in a Washington Post article about I think mm-hmm. Abby Olheiser wrote about the whole fuck yeah, Tumblr thing back in like 2015, um, right at sort of at the end of that era. Um, and it's just a great yeah, it's 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 so fun to see that rise. But I think what the fuck yeah era of Tumblr showed was like these, these rise of exactly what you said of like these interest-based communities where you had like increasingly obscure interests. Um, My friend and I had one on transhumanism and um, I think it was called 
like all the singular ladies or something, but we like, you know, you would just make these things like overnight. Like I can't even, I mean, we probably post like you would like make them. And sometimes you just post on there like four times. And then sometimes you'd post on there forever. Like, I mean, I have like dozens of them because you could make them so easily. Um, Yeah. I think I had like a couple of like specific ship ones that I (laughs) co-ran with a couple of friends of mine from like fandom Tumblr and like, I think we maybe posted on it five times before forgetting that it existed and just reblogging the stuff that was relevant to that topic to our own personal blogs. But I, yeah, I get reminders. I, I've spent so much time trying to like scrub my old internet history off. Just not, I'm not like embarrassed about it or anything. It's just, well, I am embarrassed. Basically, there were, it was really embarrassing. And I, a lot of times I was revealing personal information. So like, I've tried to kind of get rid of all those, but, um, but sometimes I get a email that's like, your Tumblr da 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 just turned like 13 years old today or whatever. And you're like, oh my God, I can't believe I made that. I need to delete that immediately. <laughs> I just found fuck yeah history crushes. Uh, this is up my alley. It's just wonderful pictures of burly uh, men from history. I love that. This is like, ugh, I miss this era of the internet so much. It was so good. Yeah, things feel uh, scary and aggressive now, in a, in a way, and like so high stakes. Everything mm-hmm. feels so high stakes in a way that it didn't back then when it was like, just this. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of things going on in the background, right? But this this era of experimentation and play that feels like is dead now. In most places, right? Yeah, it's totally dead. And I think you couldn't make a lot of these things now. Like there's just, we're in such a, I I mean, I think we're in a very hypercritical internet, which is so good in so many senses, because like a lot does deserve critique, you know, like if somebody made a history Tumblr and it's all men or something, right? Like we should critique that. I'm just making things up, but like, you know, like things like that. I think people are like, oh, you know, like let people enjoy things. And it's like, no, we need criticism. And like, actually, I think actually a lot of that came from Tumblr. Tumblr was very like sort of self-critical and progressive and had ideas. I mean, I remember learning um, what a non-binary person was for the first time on Tumblr, like literally over a decade ago, you know, like they were so ahead of the time on so many social things, but but I think it, there wasn't that same level of toxicity that there is now, especially driven by Twitter. And I think, I mean, I think that shift from Tumblr to Twitter ushered in a lot of stuff because Twitter, you know, in the mid 2010s also embraced this like algorithmic feed, which Tumblr never, you know, had at the time um, that rewarded, yeah, extremism and horrible stuff. Kind yeah, of, I think, sorry, go ahead. Oh, sorry. You go ahead, Matt. No, no, no. I was about to, I was about to pontificate in a way that we probably didn't need to do. You, you probably you go <laughs> I ahead. Gonna, and I was just going to segue into talking about um, some other sad things, or I guess <laughs> maybe not sad as much as it is just like a sign of the changing times that we talked a little bit about earlier, which was about the, the money and the capitalism underlying it all. Um, because, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier about how, you know, the the kind of punk sensibilities of the 90s colliding with the girl bossification in this in the 2010s you know it it became like you went from no it's awful to try to make money off of this creative stuff that you're doing to hell yeah get your bag mm-hmm. um how does that start to happen to the social platforms themselves like what is a, like 
were the early social platforms trying to make money? Were they trying to be viable businesses themselves? Yeah. Well, they had a lot of venture capitalist funding. So yes, they were eventually going to have to make money, but it was really early. I mean, like Facebook, you know, Facebook obviously started launching ads and had a whole ad network and was, you know, a big company by even 2010. It's not like these companies weren't trying to make money. MySpace as well, you know, like they tried to make money, but I think what was different, it's it's not so much about the companies trying to make money. It's more about the users and users were not trying to make money. Like, I mean, I don't, I think they probably would have liked to, but there was no viable path. I, I think about this all the time, actually with Tumblr, because I think about the audience that I cultivated on Tumblr. And if I had been able to monetize that, I would have never gotten in traditional media. Like the sort of springboard from virality was like, oh, you go viral online and then you try to use that to like, get something in the mainstream traditional world because you really can't make the money online. And maybe these platforms have some revenue models, but like creators aren't being cut in. Only YouTube was sort of even thinking about this and their partner program was so small. It was so small. Like, and the creators were so small and like, you know, maybe you got $9,000 for a campaign, which seemed like millions, but nowadays would be nothing, you know, because it, it wasn't enough to really sustain yourself. So um, yeah, it wasn't until the mid 2010s when all the marketing dollars really poured in, and that's where and and that's where you saw the the rise of the word influencer, which comes from the marketing industry, sort of applied to. Before that, everyone used very platform specific terms. You were a Tumblr creator, or like a Tumblr blogger, or a um, Viner, or a YouTuber. You know, like there wasn't that was the terminology. And yeah, the mid 2010s were were horrible and girl boss, and that's when I think like you really started to see the effects on capitalism sort of capitalism's effects on the internet where people started to see it as a path to entrepreneurship. I was on a podcast recently and um, we were talking about this guy and I totally forgot his name, but he wrote this piece about how um, the internet like revived the American dream. And I just thought it was so mm-hmm. true where like he talked about kind of like in the nineties and like the early, t- the early aughts, like it was clear that like there wasn't a lot of class mobility that we have wealth disparity. It was really hard. Like people were losing faith in this notion of like, everyone can make it, you know, come to America and everyone can make it. And how the internet and social media revived that. And we sell people on this thing of like, anyone can make it online. Like you just have to post enough. You just have to grind enough. You just have to like, you know, you know, use YouTube every day and, and you might be a Mr. Beast, you know? Um, and I think a lot of that had been internalized by the mid 2010s and you had tons of brand money coming in suddenly. I so you feel had, like, yeah. I'm sorry. I feel like I'm staring down the barrel of a gun right now, given my line of work, but yeah, it, it's, that's exactly it. It, it really is exactly that. It's um, dark. Yeah. And I don't, you know, my book, I don't know if this is what you're interested in or all, but like people, you know, a lot of people, I, I, my book, like, I don't, I I like to tell just in my reporting generally, and I think this is from being like having it drilled out of me, but like, I like to kind of like tell the stories and not get too into like, I think hopefully people read the book and see how messed up everything got and kind of like recognize like the problems. And I talk a little bit about it, but like, obviously I think that this hyper-capitalist social influencer driven ecosystem where everyone has to commodify themselves is like, incredibly toxic and corrosive and bad. It's liberatory in some ways. I'm glad that the legacy media is dying in a lot of ways. They deserve to in many instances. But um, 
but it's, but it's this really bad new system. And um, anyway, I don't get like too political in the book, but I think if you read it, you can understand how the sort of arc, hopefully. What do you think then if like, like legacy media is dying, right? I think, I think we can all agree on that. Yeah. Um, uh, the people that run the companies, they're still deluded about it. Yeah. Well, uh, don't get us started. Um, so what then can you tell us like what the, what does the world look like in five years? What does it look like in 10 years? Where are these trends taking us? What's yeah. what horrible new future have we built for ourselves? Well, we could build a better future, <laughs> but we'll probably have the worst option available. I keep learning like that's really, it, you know, that's always what happens is the worst option available. But, um, you know, I, I think we're moving towards this um, personality driven media ecosystem. It's been that way for a really long time. But um, you have basically like a very distributed media environment where we have so many people that have their own little media companies, right? Like, I mean, I was thinking of this girl, um, actually, I was catching up with a colleague. I worked at Refinery29 and um, our old colleague, um, this girl, Serena, is now like a full-time influencer. And her um, she's her name is Serena Kerrigan. She's so talented, but apparently she worked at Refinery29. I didn't overlap with her, but I was just thinking like, wow, you, um, that's incredible because she's been able to build this whole like dating. Like she has a lot of like a dating podcast and show and content and she's huge on TikTok and like she's built an entire media brand basically around dating. Whereas previously someone like that would have to work for like even a digital media company like Refinery. So I think we're seeing more like individualized media. Um and you know the the scary thing is is and I've written about this too um is like that media ecosystem there's a lot less oversight. It's great because it's not dominated by you know, some old man at the New York Times, but it's really bad because you do still have special interests exerting power. Like, for instance, somebody like Barry Weiss, right, where she's has a very specific political agenda. She pretends to be this independent journalist, but she's backed by, you know, rich billionaires that just want to that also that just sort of like want to prop up corporate power or push, you know, anti-trans nonsense. And so it's a little bit hard with this new creator driven ecosystem, because I think there's a lot less sort of like understanding of like, okay, who has got a bunch of billionaire backers and who is, you know, a true independent media. I don't think we have a very true independent media in this country. We have right-wing media, corporate media, and then maybe some people on the internet that have sort of started to build a following, but nothing too robust. I'm just thinking about like every small organization. It's like, or or like the PBS and viewers like you, thank you. Kind of, kind of situation. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm into that. Um, Well, there's a lot of that now though, right? Like there There is a lot of that now, I think. Yeah. Yeah, there's, There's, I mean, there's so much small media companies. I think of actually bikes. Like I, you know, I was getting a new bike a little while ago. And like, I think in the past, I probably would have turned to like a magazine, like outdoors magazine to look Mm -hmm. for a bike and like look for their bike recommendations. And now I'm like, okay, let me go. There's so many YouTube channels that, and and social media sort of creators and, you know, people that just like truly specialize in all these niches that have built media companies around and they do ad deals with bike companies and they talk about the different locks and you can extrapolate that into everything, food, fashion, um, you know, like beauty, like uh, there is content around everything new breaking news, right? You have breaking news. Now co- the way that people learn about breaking news is increasingly through content creators. 
um, not through legacy media. And I think we're, I think all those trends are accelerating. Um, yeah. I think like watching, watching Hassan Piker watch uh, debates, you know, and then kind of breaking all that traditional stuff apart for you in like, inter- like people want to feel like they're hanging out on the couch with somebody. In some ways. And they want analysis too. They want like I think the reason that news analysis is so popular on TikTok, it's like ninety percent of TikTok sometimes like when there's a big news event, I feel like it's like everyone like the analysis videos or like the Burning Man like analysis or celebrity <laughs> analysis. Like I think people want the world contextualized and they want you know people who they ideologically agree with or so who they sort of um, you know like they something about them resonates with them in some way like they want the they want to understand information through that person because there's no trust and by the way the mainstream media has lost that trust it's on them they they squandered that trust with the audience and i think they they still like executives at these companies i was just reading some response to like west this piece west lowry wrote that was phenomenal about like just how there's no such thing as objective like an objective point of view mm-hmm. um and um, it's so funny. They're they're just so delusional. They really think like, oh, no, you know, we'll get back to this world where, you know, the grizzled old man sort of tells you what the news is of the day. And it's like, no, that's I'm sorry. We're, we're, that's not happening anymore. <laughs> I'm just thinking about like broadcast, like the movie broadcast news and just like being like, ah, yes, we must return to that time where it's, you know, um, Jack Nicholson behind the desk, the most objective kind of newscaster in the world. Just serious, serious ass. Like, I don't know. There's I there. There are benefits and drawbacks to this new era. And, and oh, I'm, yeah, I'm I mean, there's. Yeah, the drawbacks are like rampant misinformation and like <laughs> all the other bad stuff that comes along with it. But I I am I I I will say again, I, I truly think that an independent media ecosystem is better. I've always been a huge supporter of that. I came from the blogger world, so I think I still have that like mentality. But um I don't want to li- ever live in a world. I, I don't I think about the nineties and like I don't want to go back to that media landscape ever. I may have yeah. to. I may have to fight a cat. I apologize. Just being rambunctious. Okay. Well, then I'm going to go down a diversion route before we we talk about Vine before we close it out. Because Taylor, just to to quickly, um, just you know, fourth ball break for a second. Uh, when is your heart out? Oh yeah, um, like nine thirty. But I can be a few minutes late. Okay. Um, then I, I will not talk about VidCon. Um, but oh, can you I, talk about VidCon for a minute. So. Um, I was an early vlog brothers. I was a nerd fighter back in the day. Um, was like an admin on like one of the nerd fighters of New York Facebook pages. Was not allowed to go to early, like VidCon 2011 because my mom said no, which is very sad for me personally, but she was not wrong. But just like seeing what happened and just like the passage of time going from, you know, John and Hank Green just like sending basically using YouTube as a way to send videos back and forth to each other, which is how the channel started to early collab channels to then watching that community turn into a company, turn into a media empire now to things like SciShow and Crash Course. And it's just, you know, the book, your book has really made me realize, you know, it's not just looking back at these things with nostalgia it really just feels like it we're we're speed running just all of these changes in society as technology you know changes and the communities around them change too a hundred percent yeah 
A hundred percent. And it's, it's so recent. Again, it's like this recent history that I think we don't talk enough about um, because we feel like, oh yeah, we, I remember that. Or, oh, that was just like, that wasn't that long ago. It's like 10 years seems like nothing sometimes. I, and um, yeah, I just think it's worth like contextualizing it and reexamining it and talking about like the user side. Like, I think that's what I, a lot of these um, sort of corporate stories don't tell. It's like, I love the inside story. I read, I loved Mark Bergen's YouTube book, which everyone should read, like comment, subscribe. It's like, he's just done such a great job of telling the story of YouTube. And obviously he talks about like viral videos and stuff, but like these, you, I wanted to like zoom out and talk about how all of these platforms emerged together and things like VidCon and all that, this whole industry that emerged around it. Because I think that's what's missing about the story of social media. When we think about the story of the rise of social media only through the lens of like the social network and like these singular company mm-hmm. narratives, we miss like this whole ecosystem around it. Yeah. And to wrap up our conversation, I want to ask a question about the death of Vine. Yeah. Um, because I think that that feeds into it perfectly because the death of Vine was basically like a union power struggle in a way. <laughs> yeah, I know. And I, it's like the last time like creators, I think, had enough power over a platform to like truly exert that power. Now, I think the platforms are very intent on never allowing uh, creators to have like a group of creators to have that much power over a platform. Um, but yeah, I mean, so much of the death of Vine, it, well, it was a self-inflicted wound. I mean, the like I talk about this, but like, I think that, um, I mean, Elon is learning this lesson now. Like you cannot have a hostile relationship to your user base. You cannot, you cannot dictate who is popular on your platform. You can try, but you're going to drive everyone away. Like look at Clubhouse, right? Like they tried to make mm-hmm. all of Andreessen Horowitz like influencers on their platform and no one wanted to use the platform anymore. Like you cannot, you, you, you need to listen to your users and you need to be respectful of the communities that you've cultivated. You, of course, you can like incentivize different forms of content, but yeah, they were like horrible to like their biggest creators. And then all the biggest creators were like, okay, why are we even on here? You're not even paying us. You're not servicing us in any way. And um, so like, yeah, pay us or we're going to get out. And they ultimately, Vine did not have the money to even pay them. I felt bad for Karen Spencer, who was sort of brought in too late in the game to like really change the course of, because she really did try to like get the money. Like she really wanted to help, you know, to work with them, but she ultimately, um, you know, the, the company was too far gone and it shut down and what a huge loss. Once again, Twitter mismanaged something. I mean, Twitter. <laughs> shock. So shocked. They can never get it together. They really can never get it together. I loved also Nick Bilton's Hatching Twitter. I read it years ago, but it was a great book on early Twitter. Um, yeah, the, there, so, was, yeah. there was definitely an energy uh, when they sold to Musk that was like, this is, the, this, is the, this is the best thing that could happen. We don't have to be in yeah. charge of this thing anymore. He's going to give us <laughs> way too much money and take all of our problems away here. Sure, buddy. Take it. Great. I have to say, like, I was optimistic about Elon's takeover. I I'm not inherently, or I I wasn't inherently sort of like anti Elon running Twitter. I think I didn't realize how that he was like full on sort of like supporting fascists at that time. But I was like, you know, Elon has three successful companies. Twitter, he, everyone's correct that Twitter was on life support. And I, I think people don't realize that. Like Twitter was was not going to be around for much longer in its previous form. It just wouldn't have. It would have sort of petered along and it died out and it never was able to sort of ascend to 
what, you know, one of the giants. Um, but obviously what Elon's done to it is horrif- horrifying and terrible and RIP. <laughs> yeah. I know we need to let you go. But it, I hate to end on such a negative note. I think people will like to bu- like the book. It is a very fun read. I hope. Um, yeah, there it is. Where can people um, find it? When is it out? It's well, it's out on pre-order now. So pre-order it right now. Pre-orders are so important for books. Like the only thing that count as I realized. Um, and also that way you'll have it on your doorstep October 3rd, which is when it formally drops, which is really only a couple weeks away. So pre-order it now. We'll love it. Taylor Lorenz, thank you so much for coming on to Cyber and talking to us about all this. Thank you so much for having me. Take awesome. care. Bye, guys. This was so Bye. fun. Bye. All right. <laughs> Bye. All right, Cyber listeners, we're going to pause there for a break. We'll be right back after this. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. All right, cyber listeners, welcome back. We are switching gears. Uh, I had to do Gus management at the end of that. Yeah, how's, how's, how's our guy doing? He's fine. The thing is, like, he has a... He's like a dog. Uh, he's got a very set schedule. And now it's about 1231. It's like, now's the time where you make me chase the mouse and then I get a mm. treat. Um, that's not happening. And then no. he starts, he's like, he. so he sat down. He was in my lab for a while. It was nice. Then he got down and he looked at me and just stared at me for 10 minutes. Uh, then he got up and he just started prowling. And it was like a trouble prowl. I was like, oh, this isn't going to be good. Uh, he started, he like looks at me and then he looks at a wire and he's like, are we doing this? So we don't have to do this. We can, you can just go make me chase the mouse. Like buddy, I'm doing, I'm talking to the people. Uh, Julian the other day was being a right terror. Like all he, I mean, I feel so bad even describing it like that. It's just like I was working and I couldn't pay attention to him because I was like trying to, I was trying to record voiceover for something. Yeah. And like, uh, he kept going like, Mau, and I'm like, dude, you can't be in the background of this TikTok. <laughs> where's the catnip? <laughs> My roommate moved it and I don't know where it went. I can't distract. Oh, uh, that's unfortunate. Uh, so do you have any, do you have any final thoughts on being extremely online? Uh, my thoughts about extremely online is that I love logging off. Um, <laughs> and something we kind of talked to Taylor about a little bit and I, I would, you know, we can talk about a little bit more is just like how much is looking back on the early of the past 20 years of internet nostalgia versus actually this was a better time. And like, it's... you know, that's always looking at history, like through a different lens than, you know, it, it's just something that I've been thinking about a lot recently. Sorry, I was getting our next guest the link to to get them in. Um, yeah, I think that that's a really good point. Uh, maybe it was because of the place that I was in in my life at the time, but it's very easy for me to look at the early two thousands, which is when uh, a decent portion of this book, or those those the aughts, um, and realize like this is a really shitty time for our culture, uh, and like this weird time of transition and like global war on terror spins up 
and we've got uh, uh, like this this big boom on the internet and in reality television, and a lot of that stuff I look back on now, and it's just this was all slop. So much of this was so bad. So much of this was terrible. Um, and you know what? The '90s also terrible. It was all bad. <laughs> it was all bad. Don't have nostalgia for any of it. Uh, That's true. Move forward. Um, the other thing I wish I had had a chance to ask her. Uh, but I'll ask you is, mm. do you have extremely offline friends? Like, do you have friends that don't have like any social media or know what anything is like, what any of this stuff is? I'm silent because I'm thinking. Okay. Uh, what I'm going to do is answer that with an anecdote. Um, excellent. Which is part of what I was doing in, California when I was there was visiting a friend who had a baby during the pandemic and I've been very, you know, proactive in making sure I'm asking questions. I'm like, okay, can I post a picture of the baby on my Instagram? Like how, how do you want me to handle this? Because I think that, you know, the way that social media has kind of evolved over the past 20 years is very much being like, this is your life. And it is online versus that really, you know, the demarcation that we were talking about at the beginning of uh, our conversation with Taylor from the pseudonymous internet into more, you know, this is you and your online um, and where the, the separation between your actual personhood and your online persona and how that goes. And just like, I think that we're at a point where we're kind of facing a reckoning over that. And, you know, we've been talking about that as it relates to child influencers. And that'll be the topic of another episode once we get all of our ducks in a row about that. But just kind of like, it for a while, it didn't feel like there was a choice if you wanted to keep up with modern culture and the zeitgeist. Like, how do you... How do you, how are you online without being online? And I guess the equivalent of that is lurking. Yeah. I'm a big lurker, actually. Most of the spaces I'm in, I lurk. Where, where, which social platform in particular uh, do you lurk the most? Uh, because I am a, a video gamer, uh, mm. Discord and Reddit. Interesting. Uh, so it's like... Reddit, just watching the conversations and watching people ask questions and talk about like Starfield, for example, uh, discord for the same thing, but it's also about, uh, discord is a great place to harvest memes. Mm -hmm. Um, so you like go to the, the discord server that is run by a game company that, that, uh, is like the place where people gather to talk about the video game you're playing, say Warhammer 40 K dark tide. Mm-hmm. Um, then those companies usually have a separate channel in the discord server. That is just the memes. Then you go into that and like, I'm harvesting those to sprinkle across my various group chats throughout the day and make them think that I'm very clever and you never share where you got them from. <laughs> No, of course not. You can't reveal your sources there. No. You have to do source protection there, you know? Uh, da, 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 da. Uh, can we ask why Matt is not part of the boycott Reddit crew? What is his take on this? We've done an episode about this, actually. Yeah, we did. We did do. There, there is a past cyber episode, which I will pull up here in a second. 
and try to link where we talked quite a bit about the, the boycott Reddit stuff. Um, some of it, like, I boycotted it for a while, but also I didn't use the apps. And, like, it's the same thing that happens that always happens. It's like eventually you break down uh, and you have a question that you need an answer to. And where are you going to go? You're going to type that into Google? You're not going to get the answer. Got to go to Reddit. You got to go to Reddit and find out who asked the question before and like get it from there. Uh, yeah. So it's, and I yeah. Think also, it would be interesting, maybe you know, sometime in the next month or two, for us to go back and do some more reporting on what the state of the anti-spez slash like what's going on with the mod cord guys um, there, now. There so was, thank you for asking that question. Yeah, there was a really good. A lot of them lasted much longer than I expected. There was one of them that I was in, one of the subreddits I was in, they did a really great job of just posting pictures of Don Cheadle for like a month yeah. solid. Uh, they kept it God up a long time. Uh, and I was very proud to have be a lurker in that community. Um, but then it, you know, eventually eventually people forget and things move, move on and like Reddit pushes through. And we're seeing this again with, I think it's going to be different. Uh, this is something I want to talk to Corey Doctorow on about when we have him on, uh, not next week, but the week after, are you following mm-hmm. this unity thing at all? Do you know anything about this? Uh, so I keep seeing people tweeting about it, but like, my my feelings about like the video game world is that I'm happy to know like 30 per okay 50 percent of what's going on in games news at any given time just to like protect my heart um it's like when I was in Seattle I was walking down the street and I was like oh my god I have walked into PAX West (laughs) that was truly the most horrifying thing that ever had I had to explain to my friend that I was with what Cuphead was and I'm like I can someone please just put me out of my misery. I don't need to. I hate that. I know these things. Yeah. So this is actually, actually I I wanted to hear this story and Becky, I know I see you waiting in the wings. We will bring you on to talk about UFOs in a minute. Um, Just give us one second. Then we'll be back. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So hit me with your PAX West story. Oh, so I was um, visiting my college roommate who lives in Seattle and she lives in like the Capitol Hill area. And we were just walking towards Pike Place Market because um, I'm not much of a touristy person, but I just wanted to see a guy throw a fish and then be done with it. Um, so we're walking down the street and suddenly I start seeing people like a larger than normal um, percentage of people I was around having shirts that were either about like Dungeons and Dragons or like my brother, my brother and me. And I was like, something is happening right now. And I saw a lot of people in like various anime vibes cosplay. And I'm like, Oh no, Oh no. And I see a sign for PAX West and I'm just like, God, I can't believe I'm here. I thought I would be able to avoid this. This is like work for me. I don't want to be here. You are, you are a gamer though. Why do you hate our culture, Emily? Why why do I not want to be a part of the PAX West gamer community? Yeah. Is that your question? Yeah, yes. <laughs> because um I'm not like the other girls. Um <laughs> but <laughs> um but it, it's more just like I um really enjoy doing these things in my own 
time and in my own ways. And if I was approaching these communities in a slightly different, from a slightly different angle, maybe I would be really into it. Um, I think I was talking earlier in our conversation with Taylor, like I've been in like into the idea of fan conventions and wanting to go to fan conventions. Oh God, for like 20, some 20 years, something like that. Um, haven't gone to a lot of them, which it could have been fun to go to some of them, but, um, I think, you know, my, a lot of my intersection with a lot of these fan communities has been very on the internet and through <laughs> my own, um, you know, dipping my toe in as deep as I wanted to. Whereas I think going to a convention, you're really soaked in it. And also, you know, if we're going to pull the curtain back a little bit, like we're journalists and going to a big convention like that feels like work. And I was on a two week vacation and I was like, I don't want to think about work when I am on my last day of my vacation. Yeah. You're starting Um, to construct TikToks and blogs as you're walking around looking at everything and like, that's no good. You don't want That's to be exactly that what I started thinking about. And I was just like, we're not doing this. I need to go. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. I don't think I could. I mean, I don't like, um, I've been to several in my time. I've actually been to a, I've been to a Star Trek convention, if you can believe it. Um, was that, how was that? Was it a lot of fun? Uh, it was all right. It was funny. I went with uh, a girl I was dating at the time wanted to go. Um, and I went and I got to see the guy that played Cisco, whose name escapes me on DS nine who's my favorite captain and I got to see him speak and that was really fun and good. And then the rest of the thing, like so much of this stuff, it really depends on which one you go to, but it just feels like a giant um, shopping mall. Yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like you're just, it's just vendors and people selling comic books. They couldn't move at their store, Uh, you know, for the past 20 years that they're selling on discount and like t-shirts, Avery Brooks. Thank you. Uh, Avery Brooks was incredible. Um, there's just so much of this stuff is just commerce and it's not actually like panels and stuff like that. And like that kind of turns me off. It's like, I can go to a comic book store anyway. Anyway, <laughs> let's talk about, do you want to talk, no, about, let's talk about space and aliens? Yes. Let's talk about Austin aliens. Mark. Let's do that <laughs> before I go down the rabbit hole of like sad old nerd, uh, completely. <laughs> Let me shut down all these fuck. Yeah. Tumblers I had. Up while we're talking to, <laughs> yeah, let, let's close the tabs from the last uh, guest. Right. <laughs> uh, I guess right before we jump in, did we did we we don't have sound if we pull up a thing? I don't think so. Okay. Uh, I do want to say that Motherboard has a documentary coming out. Yeah, I'm gonna drop the link to it in the chat for people to watch as their you know little amuse bouche um, for this conversation. If you so desire, it could be. Or maybe like an after stream little, you know, aperitif if we're going to go some some fancy, you know, content snack, as we say here at Vice. Um, but yeah, so Vice or Motherboard has a documentary that's coming out on Netflix about aliens and you should absolutely watch it. We're all really excited for that to premiere. Because uh, as, as much as it uh, hurts me inside and I hate talking about it. Uh, we're going to keep talking about aliens and we're going to keep talking about UFOs uh, because it's in the news. Um, so it's time to leave our terrestrial world behind and look instead to the stars. Can we get Becky on here, please? Hello. Hello. How Welcome. are you? I'm doing all right. Um, so it was a banner week for weird UFO news and with us today to talk about all of motherboard. I've got, I, I'm having, this is why you don't go off the air for two weeks. All right, I'm going to take this as a re- I'm going to reread this again. 
I All believe right. in you. We got this, guys. <sighs> Encouragement in the chat, please. <laughs> Unique <laughs> New York. All right. Stop. <laughs> Are we going to do zip zaps off? Are we yeah. going feeder kid mode now? Or? Got to do. Yeah. Anyway. All right. It was a banner week for weird UFO news. And with us today to talk about all of it is motherboard science writer. I can't, I don't know why I can't do your last. It's because, no, it's because you, okay. I, you know what's funny is I listened to my, I listened to the past episode too. And I was like, all right, I do this every time. And I'm going to listen to it before. I'm going to pronounce it correctly because I know what I'm doing. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Say it for me one more time. Ferreira? Yeah. <laughs> why Why did I? Okay. It's, it's good. It's good. All right. It's always, it's always a 50-50 chance. It was a banner week for weird UFO news. And with us today to talk about all of it is Motherboard science writer Becky Ferreira. Yay. Hi. Hello. Uh, so I'm sorry that we're having you on once again to talk about UAPs, but thank what you for, you do, but thank no? you for coming. <laughs> um, My pleasure. Thank you. Uh, so top level, before we get into specifics, um, did we actually learn anything this week? Well, I'm going to let you cover the whole Mexican alien thing. <laughs> Cause I, like, as I said, I actively avoided that. I was like, I can't, that's water. <laughs> I can't take it to my boat. I'm going to sink. <laughs> but, um, but in terms of like the, the NASA UAP report that came out this week, I think the biggest thing we learned is just that they appointed a director of UAP studies, which was really interesting to me. Just, it means that they're going to continue clearly having an office devoted to it. And it's also just like very X-Files in that way too. Cause they didn't reveal the name until like a little bit after the, the press conference too. So yeah, I think that's the biggest news. All right. Well, we can get into that and we've got a, a FOIA that we got back that we'll talk about as well that I think is pretty interesting and we'll show some of the stuff from that. Uh, but yeah, let's start with what happened in Mexico. Uh, <laughs> So on Tuesday, so you did, you just completely tuned out of this. Did you completely avoided it? Emily, did you I see just, any of it? Yeah. I just completely couldn't I'm handle so it. I'm so happy for you. <laughs> it, was rules, the, man. it was the logging off choice, right? That was the, the Emily at PAX West of UFO stuff. Like you just don't want to even engage. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just, I, I've, been, I've been writing only about aliens for months now too. So I was just like, I just, there's some things that can't get that need, that need time to dissolve into my brain. It's like a mitosis process. I can't just like take it as it comes. Uh, <laughs> it was helpful for me because I think as I was going over it and reading it, I didn't have, a, I didn't have to write anything about it, even though I'm talking about it now. Uh, but, yeah. but B, I think it helped me like zero in on why so much of this stuff makes me so upset. <laughs> so let's, let me, let me talk about it a little bit if I can. Uh, if my if my brain isn't too completely uh, fried, um, you got this. So on Tuesday there was a large presentation before the lower house of Mexican Congress, um, and the presentation was led by a well known crank who has a YouTube channel, um, uh, JB Masson. I think that's how you say his last name. Obviously, I'm really great with last names. Um, there was a lot of other people in the audience, kind of from all over the world. In uh, the centerpiece of it, if we can bring up the picture, yeah, can please. we? Um, were these coffins? A coffin is maybe an over dramatization, but these photograph, like these, these coffins that were opened <laughs> to reveal these shriveled little mummies 
uh, and they are mummies, as far as we know, that were purported to be uh, alien bodies. And then the rest of the presentation was basically uh, one of this guy's YouTube videos, but done for the lower house of Mexican Congress. Um, so I realized like reading this, reading about this stuff and watching this footage, like why one of the reasons why all this UFO stuff makes me so mad is that we've done all this before and we've been doing all of this for like 30, even longer than I've been alive actually. And it's just kind of the same shit over and over again. And like, once you see it once and kind of get it debunked for you, um, and get yourself inoculated to it. Like it, when it recurs like 10 years later, you're just like, we already did this. Why do we have to do it again? Um, so these mummies are famous. Like they're, this is not some grand reveal of alien bodies. Obviously these are literal mummies, uh, probably from Peru. Um, there, have you heard, do you, Becky, have you heard of the the, Naz, the the Nazca lines in Peru? You've seen these? Yeah, yeah. And this whole entanglement thing that they have, unfortunately, gotten themselves into, for sure. Yes. So basically what's happening is in 1968, uh, a guy wrote a book called Chariot of the Gods, uh, it, which is the kind of the origin story in the modern mythos of all this ancient alien stuff. So that's like why you've got uh, like the the guy on the History Channel doing ten seasons of saying we're not sure that it's aliens. I'm not saying it's aliens, but it's probably aliens, right? Um, and the the basic pitch is that uh, ancient civilizations interacted with aliens, and the aliens helped them build stuff. Um, and one of the little pieces of evidence that is thrown around are these Nazca lines in Peru. And I think I've got a link to it. If you can pull them up just so that people kind of know what I'm talking about, yeah. which are these, um, which are these Eric von Duncan. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Beatmaster. The link. Um, is it the alien mummies explained one. I'm sorry. What is it? I mean, is it this? Let me, I mean, that's, that's another link too. I thought I had a link for the Nazca line specifically, but I may have screwed up. Oh. Let me look. It is the, <clears throat> no, it's below. It's the Wikipedia we're link. We're doing it live guys. Oh no, we are. There it is. There it is. Right. Uh, perfect. So outside of, uh, these are in Peru outside of like some, some archeological sites. And it's one of these things that, that people look at and they're like, why was this built? Um, obviously can only be seen from the sky. This is obvious communication with aliens. And then part of this is that they find the mummified remains of people near these, uh, these, these, these ruins in Peru. And some of the uh, mummies have elongated skulls. So what happens is like all of these mummies get trotted out as evidence by cranks who have YouTube channels and are now uh, apparently fit to testify before Congress uh, in Mexico that these mummies with elongated skulls are evidence of aliens. Um, and in like in this guy's presentation, they even like showed an X-ray. They said like, oh, he's got you know this this body has eggs in it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Lots of really wild stuff. Uh, the thing that that drives me the, this one specifically is really irritating to me because. Most of these bodies uh, are like looted remains. They are mummies that were literally like taken out of these tombs. 
Um, sometimes there's evidence that they have been uh, like chopped up and like put like there's several different mummies that have been, been put together and like st- like stuff that's been stolen by grave robbers and like sold to cranks. Um, and this is something that like uh, archeo- Peruvian archaeologists and scientists have been talking about for a long time and have actually accused these people of committing crimes. Um, and like we know that there's a history in the area of uh, specific groups doing like skull elongation on their children. Um, and this is something that like still happens today where uh, some babies get they you get like a helmet because it's got a the skull has to be kind of shaped. Well, they used to do this uh, in Peru a long time ago to like make the skull elongate. And so people find them the mummies, they think it looks strange. And then it gets trotted out as evidence that there's there's aliens, um, and it's the the it's the idea that this stuff has been debunked like six years ago in 2017. Uh, in 2015, the same guy he tried to peddle a photo he said was of an alien corpse, and it was the mummy of a two year old boy uh, that had been found in like Pueblo cliff uh, cliff dwellings in the 19th century. Like we know where a lot of these bodies come from. There's like providence behind them. We know what or provenance behind them. Like we know where it comes from. And yet we keep falling for the same stories over and over again. And it, 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 it irritates me that we can't seem to learn anything or that, pe- that we have to be taught this over and over and over again. And that is my, my angry rant about the Nazca lion alien stuff this week. So thank you for letting me get that out. I apologize. <laughs> thank you yeah. everyone watching. I mean, <laughs> that that makes a lot of sense to me why, why you know, literally, like, I have no comment, not because I'm trying to figure out how best to put this. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's my response to all of that. Exactly. It's just like, we, uh, I don't know. Like, there's, it's something, there's something, uh, like there's one thing about a guy like going on to the history channel and talking about ancient aliens. It's a whole other level of fucked up when people in these movements are purchasing, uh, like mummies, the remains of human bodies that have been stolen from tombs and then like peddling them as aliens. It's like another level of like, like you refuse to believe, like you desecrated a tomb uh, because you want the world to believe your vision of what extraterrestrial life is. And like that just, it's no good. It's bad. <laughs> um, but that's, yeah. uh, sorry. Uh, let's, let's get into the more serious UFO news. Shall we Becky? No, totally. It, that chariots of the gods book. It's really interesting to me that it kind of sparks such a huge, you know, readership and everything. Cause I, there's like a lot of people kind of speculating about that stuff at the time, but for whatever reason that was the, the one that became mainstream. And isn't it like also like responsible for a lot of the theories of like, yeah, you know, African and South American people couldn't have made all of their monuments and kind of yeah, have that like that's, here to it as well. That's an underlying like, Beatmaster brings this up in chat, right? As you were saying it. And it's, uh, that's something else that, that, that dovetails with this stuff is like, a lot of the chariot of the God stuff and like these Peruvian mummy stuff is it's, it's all really racist and it's tied mm-hmm. up in like race science ideas from the 19th century that have been like routinely debunked, but also much like the way we talk about these aliens, like if the stuff keeps recurring and we keep having to yeah. fight it, you know, it is 
I, I do really think that the history of like alien hoaxes is very interesting, but kind of much more interesting when you get like further back and it's more rudimentary and not so organized. Cause now like there is such a community that is centered around charity of the gods and, and those, those ideas. But um, yeah, like I just, I just like those little hoaxes where someone put us like put a seed in a meteorite and then right. taped it up and was like, ha <laughs> like there's seeds in space or whatever, you know? Yeah. There's some, some, uh, a farmer unearthed something in their backyard and yeah, yeah those are a little bit more fun. I'll take that any day. Yeah. Uh, Over tomb, tomb robbing anyway. <laughs> yeah. Generally I would say one, one is definitely better than the other. I think we can genuinely conclude this. Um, but let's move on to the serious UFO news because we did have some this week. Uh, mm-hmm. The first one that, that caught my eye that you wrote was Motherboard recently got back a Freedom of Information Act request. Like what was what was in there? What had we asked them for? Yeah, it was a bunch of internal communications about this um, independent UAP study group that NASA launched last year. It was like sorry, um, emails organizing that group people emailing NASA, both experts and the public alike with their thoughts about what, how, how the group should approach. And even a couple, there's a couple emails in there from people who ended up being on the group um, who were just like kind of basically auditioning in it um, and, and telling them, telling NASA what they could do for the group. So it was really interesting as kind of a process uh, read of just um, how they, so some of the initial issues that came into making the group. And then there's also emails from the public that are, amazing because they're just like um instead of you know being like we we saw a little phosphine in in venus's atmosphere that could be like it's like flat out like i've been talking to aliens all the time and i find that really refreshing that some people are just like this is a settled question you know here's my theory and like a reminder for people like how diverse let's say opinions on these phenomena are so that was really cool to read as well. Yeah, I really enjoy uh, congratulations to your recent appointments to head up the NASA effort on UFO UAP, or what I have termed the five-dimensional atmospheric entities, or AE for short. Um, And then just uh, just really pitching their kind of variant of what they think all of this stuff is, right? Please reply to this historic email at your earliest opportunity. You can reply to me at my cell phone, cell phone redacted, or else use the reply button at the bottom of this email, which is a forward for my recent email to other employees at NOAA, NASA, etc., none of which have replied. <laughs> I'm, I'm uh, going to cry laugh reading this. This is so good. It's so <laughs> good. Well, it's also just like, I think... Um, there's another one in there that has a similar, this, that was my favorite, that was like an email saying, I emailed you guys already about how uh, I know all about the sun prophecies and how they're related to aliens. I did this in 2012, and here's a picture of the sent email. Like, that's yes. such a baller move. Like, that's such a, that's to be like, I've already, you should have been talking to me like over a decade ago. This is the email. Here's the proof. And it's just this whole, this big, very elaborate theory about, um, I think like fountain of youth stuff. And, um, but I just thought it was really cool that they were like, I've got the documents and it's like a picture of their computer screen. <laughs> the, uh, uh, one commenter emailed NASA to say that they had discovered the elixir of eternal youth and that supernatural beings had given them prophecies of the sun activity for 100 years. Uh, and then right below that. Yeah. Is the, and it's something so perfect that it's uh, there it is. Yeah. 
it's an Which AOL. It? I'm sorry. It, it's an AOL. Uh, oh, this, a, is, this is beautiful. Yeah, because it's someone it? t- taking a photograph of their desktop AOL uh, mail, which like who still has that? Good Lord. Um, and then <laughs> out of some Sorry, sort of weird politeness. Say, this person has a lot of unread emails. Um, I think it's like 6,781 if my if my close-up vision is good enough. Come I on, guy. I can't do that. Check, That's, check your email. You got to go. I mean, you got to – I'm deleting all day, but I'm still going through them. <laughs> Yeah, uh, that gives me anxiety. But I also love the big redaction block on top of mm-hmm. it, um, as if this this information about NASA and the elixir of immortality cannot be cannot be discussed, cannot be disclosed. It's not for the hoi polloi like us. Well, I I agree, and and I want to make clear, like I thought these emails were great. Like I just there, it was just a reminder again, like that there is just. There's a lot of people who have already developed their own ideas and they're, and they're very like developed like that one, the, the five dimensional entities person. that's like a fifth of the FOIA documents we received is just his theory. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> so, yeah, it is great. It was wonderful. Yeah. I think that that's another important part of all of this and like why it resonates so much with people is that it is this mystery that you kind of get to build out your own mythology for. Yeah. Right. Totally. It's participatory. Um, yeah. It- so, but the, the, we did have more NASA news this week. Um, and everybody thinks about these things a little bit differently. So what is NASA's definition of what a UAP or UFO is? And is it different from like how the Pentagon's thinking about it and what we traditionally think of? Uh, I'm not sure if their definition is different from the Pentagon. I would assume they may have uh, coordinated, but I kind of think theirs is interesting because I'm just going to get it the exact phrasing here. It was, um, sorry, observations of events in the sky that cannot be attributed or identified as balloons, aircraft, or known natural phenomena. And I thought it was kind of interesting that they even specified in the sky because they had to change it from unidentified aerial phenomenon to unidentified anomalous phenomena, just in case people were seeing things that were on the ground or like in the sea or things like that. So I I kind of expect them to change that eventually to just like things that can't be explained by technological or natural phenomenon. Well, that's the distinction between the, that's the distinction between the Pentagon uh, definition and the NASA definition then it's because they're only doing aerial. Yes. Cause the, the Pentagon is very specifically looking at things that are, uh, I can't remember what the exact terminology is, but it's stuff that they are seeing, like maybe phasing in and out of the ground and out of the sea as well. Gotcha. Okay. That, yeah. that answer brought it up then. Yeah. So, so NASA, NASA aerial. Yeah. Yep. Narrow, narrowly looking at the stars uh, is what NASA is doing. <laughs> yeah. And so only, that. only everything else other than earth. <laughs> what can you tell me? Can you tell me a little bit more about like NASA's group and what they had announced this week. Yeah. So they, um, their group was, they commissioned the study last June, I think. And, um, and then uh, convened it formally in October. And um, it's a group led by David Spurgle, who's a, who's an astrophysicist and it has a bunch of other specialists, like specialists on AI, um, public relations, you know, astrobiology. So, um, and, they the the big line at their briefing was kind of that it was supposed to make the sensationalism of this topic more scientific like how do you approach this 
And how can you use NASA's assets to support this in a scientific way? Um, so uh, they, they released some, some initial findings in the spring, and then this is their final report that they've, they've released this um, just this week. And what is – this report is 36 pages. Yeah. What's in yeah. there? Yeah, it's actually a really interesting read, and I kind of thought it was a, a really good start in terms of, like, how they're going to define their role in it, which clearly they are going to keep, you know, contributing to if they have a director in an office now. So um, – a lot of it is, okay, here's the limitations of what NASA can do. Like they were saying, we basically learned that NASA's got really great missions, but they don't have the resolution for a lot of aerial ops. Almost none of them have that kind of resolution for following up on aerial observations because they're satellites and, and things like that. So, um, uh, so they were like, we can give you environmental context for sightings that are really strange that we can't identify. We can see if there that could be a, a weather phenomenon that like the right weather patterns would be there. Um, and then they were kind of like the commercial satellite industry is better for actually trying to get independent images of sightings that people bring in. Um, they also really emphasize like this is a air safety issue. If we don't know what's going on, um, then we need, you know, then that's, that's obviously post threats to the public and, and, and pilots. So there's an impetus for a safety reason. Oh, and I should just say the top line finding is they say right away, there's nothing extraterrestrial as they, you know, always say in these things um, because they have no evidence that it is, but, um, but yeah, so it was really more like just about defining, like how do we create a whole of government approach to having a reporting system from civilians and pilots and things like that. So we can actually have a standardized system um, and also they kind of really emphasize the issue of stigma around the topic that, um, they said that their own, their, their panel got like a lot of harassment from like scientists who don't consider the topic to be important enough to study as well as like people who don't agree with NASA's like approach to it. So they were, they just hope to like have NASA's involvement will make people take this topic more seriously. They talked about themselves as like kind of a, uh, you know, mediator in that space. So, um, so I thought that was kind of interesting as well. And I think that's probably, they didn't immediately release the name of the director. And I I think that was just to (laughs) prevent him becoming like totally harassed. I was going to ask about that because I think they, I don't know if they released the guy's name today. Um, Later in the day. I think they must've just had to like, yeah. yeah. And I'm just like, damn, they can't even release the name of the government official who is like doing this stuff because they're going to get harassed for doing their job. Yeah. It's, I, I think it's really unfortunate. And I, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, that's like goes to your conversation with Taylor. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's really, and they, they, they said that they got a lot of blowback over the past year, which is really, it, it sucks, you know, and I think they're getting incoming from all sides on that kind of a thing. So um, in that way, I think it's like a really important move just to be like, this is something we take seriously. We're taking a very NASA approach to it. I encourage people to read the, the um, report because it's short and it's just like, it is very, it's very much a scientific government agency being like, well, like how do we organize all this riffraff? Like, it's just like, this is just so many different sightings. They come from so many different instruments. Like how do we, you know, kind of create a system where there is a process. And they, they also really want just like a proper process for public sightings. Like, how do you assess how you can get independent observations of things? Um, that kind of thing. So I thought it was pretty interesting, honestly, to read through. So many threads I want to pick up from that. Um, the first I think would be it's the, all right. My cynical 
my cynical take. Uh, how is how is NASA's funding lately? <laughs> I mean, it's like about status quo. I think they get about twenty four billion a year. Okay. Um, and a lot of that is sucked up into ISS and humans. Like they're doing the Artemis program, trying to return humans to the moon. That's a huge portion of it. Um, so, uh, but but I think it's been holding steady around that, which is you know a fraction of what it used to get, obviously in the in the Apollo years and things like that. Uh, if I were a space orga- an American space organization, um, and I was seeing the Pentagon get a lot of money and get a lot of concern from uh, members of Congress over the issue of UAPs, I would absolutely pl- plant my flag in there and just make sure that I was letting everyone know that I was also studying it. Um, and that <laughs> if we needed, a, if NASA wanted to get a little bit more money, I think this is probably a smart way to do it. Uh, oh, that's interesting. I didn't consider that. Yeah. Yeah, because I think a lot of, I mean, my my cynical take on a lot of the UAP Pentagon stuff specifically, because and this is a note that is in like almost every single one of the Pentagon reports is, gee, we'd love to tell you more about this stuff, but we just don't have the budget. We need a couple. Hmm. We need some more money. Um, and and it's it is a thing that has energized a lot of Congress people. Uh, obviously we've got hearings about it. Everyone wants to know what's going or a lot of Congress people want to know what's going on or are, are asking questions, holding hearings and throwing money at the problem. And if I were NASA, I would get in on that while they have, while that interest is still there. So I'll throw that out there. Um, smart, mm-hmm. smart political move. Uh, the other thread I want to pick up is this idea of, members of the scientific community not taking this stuff seriously and uh, harassing people. Um, as I got a message out of the blue from a, a, a geologist friend of mine a couple weeks ago, it was like, oh, this guy at Harvard who thinks he's found the aliens, he's completely discredited Harvard and himself and is not a scientist. And how dare he? Um, and I know this is a story that you've been following, and I believe you've, you've spoken to him several times. I've spoken to him. Uh, I remember this guy. Yeah. What is going on with uh, uh, Avi Loeb and yeah. the alien metals that he that? Well, I'll let you tell the story. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, should I should we back up and do the story of the metals? I think too, let's or? yeah, let's back up and do the story is of the it metals. alloy times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Alloy times. Alloys time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's, uh, it's a long and winding tale. So he's gotten really interested in interest, interstellar objects. Um, he is the one who mainly is the proponent of the theory that Umumua, the interstellar object was potentially an alien artifact, which is like the giant, the giant blunt sized thing that came into our space and then like turned around and took off and, and, and and was admittedly very strange. Yeah. I'm going to pull the picture of it. (laughs) So nobody's been able to really explain that very well. How do you, Oh, Um, I'm going to pretend that I know how to spell this. (laughs) Spell what now? Uh, the giant space blunt. Oh, Umuamua, O-U-M-U-M-U-A, yeah. Um, but uh, it's, uh, so So then he um, he and a, his colleague, Amir Siraj, were looking for, like, evidence of interstellar meteors hitting Earth because um, uh, they they would probably travel a lot faster and see that data is in fireball data around the world. So they found two candidates, one of which the Space Force eventually came out and was like, yeah, this was probably interstellar. Um 
So he went to try to look for remnants of that meteor that uh, exploded in 2014 over near um, Papua New Guinea. And so, and then he, and so he like sluiced the ocean floor, like a mile down, got hundreds of these little spherules, some of which do look like they are meteoric, but um, the, you know, that the seafloor probably has a lot of meteoric particles. And then now he's saying that they have, um, chemical uh, compositions that are not seen in the solar system. And uh, there's a few issues here. Like um, he did this as a preprint and uh, it kind of goes back to the discussion we had a few weeks ago about the superconductor news. Like this is just a little bit of a dicey thing to do. And a lot of scientists were like, this is fine that he wants to report the composition of these spherules, but he should do it in peer review. And his response was just like, I think it's interesting and I'm going to publish it when I want. Um, But um, but basically, a lot of scientists are, are saying, like, this is this is not that weird of composition. And um, if the, the big thing that they, they kind of suggested he should have done is gone like 100 miles somewhere else in the sea and done the same thing and seen if he would have gotten spherules of the exact same composition. There's no control sample, really. Um, Avi says that there is a control sample in the fact that they kind of went to different regions within their expedition zone. But like people I've talked to have said, you should really just go to a very far flung location to, to get that control sample. So. So it's uh, so he's kind of just moving ahead. I feel like um, he's just very convinced of, of of the origin of these things, and the, the but the science is just not there yet. Um, and I, I think it's also worth mentioning that like scientists I talk to, they're frustrated a lot with Avi because he is kind of moving into this field, and there are like people have spent decades trying to look for interstellar particles on Earth. It's not like we don't think we can't find them; like people want to find them. But there's just uh, there just hasn't been convincing conclusive evidence yet, and so I feel like that's something that I a lot of scientists I talk to feel frustrated about in terms of like the media not getting their perspective. That yes, of course we want to look for aliens, and it would be amazing if Oumuamua was an alien artifact. But like that's steps down the line. We're we're just trying to like develop how you would even identify that conclusively, you know. So it's kind of like this idea where. Um a hotshot kind of scientist celebrities moving into your space uh, and they would see it, yeah. making kind of That's making, per- <laughs> I'm sorry. What? I was going to say, it's probably how Avi sees it too. You know, um, yeah. he feels very like, uh, like he's the iconoclast and um, this blowback is not scientific in nature. It's like people, you know, trying to take him down for having outlier ideas, you know? So, so what is the, is there, I know, I think the, the last thing that you wrote on this was about like a month ago, right? Where do we, where do we stand on this now? Do we know that it's an actual particle? Like what's, what's the deal? Yeah. So he, they're, they're, they're now going through the process of peer review. And I think, um, until it's kind of these spheres are studied uh, by a lot of different labs that have no, cause like th- these were also all studied in labs that are, that were, you know, Avi has contacts in like uh, independent studies come out. Um, I think until then you can't really make a clear conclusion, but my hunch is that they are probably not um, like they, they might, you know, a lot of people don't even think the meteor was interstellar in the first place. So I, I don't think that they're, they're going to be conclusive evidence of, of like interstellar dust on earth. Um, and you know, that's just, it's, it's a really high bar. Like, um, I think it's been an interesting 
experiment. And he, Avi really interests me in terms of what he, the kind of conversations he's inspiring mm-hmm. in science. But I, I, I also can sympathize with people because he's a very brilliant, like cosmologist and, and plasma physicist, but he's only recently gone into planetary science. So I think a lot of people just feel like, okay, do your homework here first before you start like saying all this stuff, you know? Can I ask a really ignorant process question? Um, Please. Hunting for uh, specks of alloy on the bottom of the ocean seems like worse than hunting for a needle in a haystack. Yeah. Yeah. How, how, how how do you find the stuff? He, um, they, they, uh, they thought that the particles would be magnetic because uh, of just their entry path in. And um, so they, they use like just basically a big magnet that they put on the ground. I've I've heard from some like people that that actually could have compromised the the particles as well like that could make i i I don't know the science behind it so i'm not gonna pretend to but like that that could have um changed the particles in some way just from the collection method um so uh so it's just like the kind of thing where i think it's interesting is like to ask how would you do this but i mean there's lots of particles there's lots of particles on the floor there's lots of meteors there's you know like it could be from anything and there's lots of other potential or natural origins for the composition they saw according to people i've talked to all right, so, yeah. I, I've got one last question for you uh, before we let you go. Um, a few years ago, there was a tweet that went viral, and people made fun of the person for warning about 30 to 40 feral hogs. Uh, <laughs> I have no clue where this is going. I'm very curious. <laughs> and Becky, you and I, who live in like semi-rural areas... Or have family yeah. that live in rural areas. Like, we know. We know how dangerous these hogs actually are. Yeah, absolutely. And, na- and now you're telling me we've nuked them and made them radioactive? Yeah. Yeah, we did. yeah. <laughs> what? Crazy. What the fuck, Becky? Um, can I just say it delights me that we got a chance to... Because to talk about this, because the first thing I saw, I thought when I saw the headline for this thing was like, "Oh yeah, that's that's a that's a bat story right there." Boars. <laughs> I had to bring it up. Terrorizing people across Europe. So yeah, so the, these boars, um, there's uh, they've they've long been known to be radioactive, as is much a lot of animals around um, in Europe from Chernobyl, mm-hmm. but um, other animals just kept getting like the, the half-life of, of radio cesium is 30 years. So you kept seeing like it was decaying in the other animals and there it's virtually not there in them today, but the boars are just like, no, we're still radioactive. <laughs> we're just constantly radioactive. You can't eat boar meat there. So the boars are like way overpopulated uh, because they're not hunting them for food anymore. Um, so they're like just wreaking havoc in a lot of places. And like, like you say, they are, I would not approach a boar. They are, Herbivores are always more dangerous than carnivores in the wild. Do not go near those things. <laughs> like, um, so yeah, they, um, they, they've been eating these, like they rely on deer truffles, especially in the winter. Um, so those truffles are like really the source of why they're staying much more radioactive because the cesium goes into the ground into those underground sources, kind of contaminates them in a, in a, you know, it, it accumulates and just kind of stays there. So there's a constant flow between the decay rate and, the cesium reaching these food sources, which means that they have a constant, um, yeah, the, the, the boars have a constant kind of contamination rate. But what was crazy about this study is that they looked at the signature of the contamination and found that a 
bunch of it is from these atmospheric nuclear weapons tests from like the 1940s and the 60s. So they had no, they'd always mostly Chernobyl. Maybe there'd be a little bit of this in there, but they, they found like it, it's like 10 to 68% in a lot of the samples they got, like a huge amount of radioactive material and fallout still infecting a lot of Europe from those tests. So, and that's global radiation stuff. So that's like, that's everywhere. It just, they think that because it's interacting with Chernobyl radiation, it's maybe got some inter fallout kind of interactions going that may be keeping it going longer, uh, which is. Do we have, do we have any idea which tests can we blame France for this? I I don't know. Cause did France ever detonate one that was close to Europe? Oh yeah, they will. No, they were mostly doing um, off of their colonies in the. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, they did like two hundred or something. I, f- I feel like we gotta gotta give them some credit. Yeah, for the France is in like people make fun of France and France's military, and they forget that it's a nuclear power, and uh, all they, all they focus on is World War Two, and not all the other stuff that France does. Oh lord yeah i feel like i need to go on a wikipedia rabbit hole journey after this conversation just to be like oh oh no this was this was the plot of the this was the plot of the bad godzilla movie from like 2000 with matthew broderick i'm not kidding it was they blamed uh godzilla was created by uh french nuclear testing off of uh, i think like the coast of french polynesia was there like their open air atmospheric yeah. testing was what made him. Can I ask yeah. like a sciencey question once? Sorry, Becky, I don't mean to cut you off. No, go for it. So like, I'm, I'm hearing what you guys are talking about with the boars and I'm imagining like the, the, you know, food pyramid of like the ecological food pyramid and thinking about like what happened with the bald eagles and DDT and, and whatnot. I mean, like, I, you know, there are some large carnivores left in, in mainland, like in, you know, Europe, but not that many. I assume a lot of the, you know, wolves and bears and whatnot have been extirpated mostly. But like, is, the, you know, are we going to see like a very nuclear, like, you know, giant bear come out of the woods somewhere because it ate a lot of boars and <laughs> this just happened? Or like, is that yeah. something that people are concerned about? Yeah, the, the, the great nuclear boar. Bear boar is very <laughs> no. I'm, I'm not even sure. Like maybe, um, but uh, I think probably because they are so, um, they they're like a pretty unique food source. Like they wouldn't be the sole food source for I think a lot of animals, um, especially as you mentioned. Like so many predators have retreated. Um, that they're 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 probably not posing a huge threat to the overall food system. Like even the scientists I talked to were like, if you ate one of these boars or meat from these boars, you'd be fine. It's just that you can't have it be a cultural practice anymore, uh, where that's like on the table every week or every couple of days, right? It's just, um, yeah, over time it's going to be a problem. So, um, I but I but I think your to your point, Emily, like that's what my takeaway was from talking to these uh, scientists was just like. We don't really know the long-term consequences of, of fallout and just the idea that different types of fallout could be interacting with each other and, and, and nobody really knows what the dynamics of that are. You know, they were obviously talking about to the threat of, of nuclear weapons being detonated in the, in the invasion of Ukraine and um, just like general safety for as we, as we presumably move a little bit more to nuclear as an energy source, you know, like if, if there's any more contamination who knows if that like 
kind of junks it up even more. Um, it's just this idea that there could be like layered different types of fallout that are bigger than the sum of their parts. That is really scary. And I, I, you know, it, I'm, I'm mad. It's probably something that you've long ago digested, but I am always like so surprised how little people knew, like, or people did they just underestimated so much at the time, the, the weapons testing. And the, when you read like documents being like, Oh yeah, it's very, it's very climate change. Like where it's just like, Oh yeah, it's, it's a big earth. You know, that is particles everywhere. It'll be fine. Like <laughs> the stuff that they were talking about using nuclear weapons for after the war and like up until like 1955, there was like this nine year period where people were pitching just absolutely wild things. My favorite being, uh, and they tested this um, using nukes as an alternative for in mining operations. So just detonating huge nukes underground to like loosen a bunch of things up. And then you just go in there and collect everything. Oh my uh, God. Okay. Yeah. Sure. No, we, uh, 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 Carl Sagan worked on a project uh, where the military would nuke the moon as a show of force. No. Yes. Oh, I, yeah. I remember that. Because they knew that it would be visible from Earth, right? So they'd be like, yeah. Like, we did that. We nuked to the moon, yeah. Russia. You back off now. <laughs> yeah. Psycho. Like, I'm, I'm trying to find, the, uh, when I, um, from my vacation, there's like a, I'm just airdropping this to my computer, so please bear with me in terms of things that are radioactive. There is like a, a China cabinet in this antique shop full of, like, uranium glass. Nice. Um, it was great. Hold on. Oh. Let me open this on my screen. Um, I also just really like the idea of the, the great nuclear bear. Like, I think yeah. that's like a good children's story for our it's new from age. the makers of cocaine bear. It's <laughs> nuclear now. bear. Oh yeah. That's, uh, Oh my God. I want, see, I want some of this, but Karen won't let me have it in the house. I think Karen's right. I'm, I'm just going to say it. <sighs> she is. She is. I know she's right. Uranium glass pendants, chain included. Wow. But you can get... by my souvenirs. Mm -hmm. There's a... The one I really want is there's a uranium glass Virgin Mary. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's great. Oh, sorry. Yeah, that's... And it's expensive and also, you know, radioactive. (laughs) (laughs) But it's... But no, I see the appeal. That's pretty good. Yeah. Where is it? Is uh, there only one? Or no, there, there, like there was a bunch that were produced. So you have to like find them. You have to find one on eBay and pay a couple hundred bucks. It's like one of those kinds okay. of things. Uh, because gotcha. again, there was this period where we were making <laughs> like, you know, uranium glass. Uh, and also, uh, of course, every, the, the famous story is the, the radium watch dials that were, uh, the women would paint like, cause you had to have a watch that would glow in the dark. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, they would yeah, paint it on right. and they would use their mouth to like keep the, um, yeah. the brush wet. And then they would get it, you know, then they all got oral cancer and died. Um, yeah, just oh, this, yeah. this Awful. brief, like nine year period where we were obsessed with the possibility of, uh, what the atom could do for us, uh, and not yeah. thinking about how it would poison all of us forever. Yeah. Oh, I think it's so beautiful that it's Virgin Mary statuettes. I mean, what a mixed message to be making. those. <laughs> yeah. You're doing a really good job of like putting the two of us in an eBay bidding war. Um, <laughs> so watch out. Yeah. No, I, I, yeah. Might have to look into that. <laughs> it's 
pretty crazy. Um, something like, uh, let me ask uh, a follow-up question when you were talking about the, 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 the boars. Is that, you said um, it's more dangerous to approach a herbivore in the wild. I should probably take that back. I feel like people, uh, I feel like people underestimate herbivores more. Yes. But I want to, I want to look into it if, if there's who, who kills more people. Cause I feel like carnivore attacks are more deadly if it happens but more, but they happen more rarely. Yeah. There are more, there are just like simply in terms of numbers, there are far more herbivores than there are carnivores just because like, that's how like, you know, trophic levels work. Yeah. It levels. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like, yeah, it's definitely herbivores are far more dangerous. I mean, I think of like, you know, just looking at like a picture book of dinosaurs. Yeah. You know, you, yeah. I would, you know, you see a T-Rex, you know, it's going to be bad. But honestly, I'm far more afraid of like an ankylosaur and getting on the wrong side of one of those guys. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. Because they'll just they'll just hit you with that tail and. That's just a slow death with a crushed rib cage. <laughs> exactly. It's like, it's, and it's, you know, I, that's generally, you know, I, I was watching, um, I go to one of those dentist's office. It's like very silly and gimmicky that has like a TV on the ceiling. So you could watch planet earth as they're doing, you know, the water pick. Um, it. It, it's, it's very silly, but I was watching like, Oh yeah, here's like, you know, this baby um bighorn or whatever not bighorn baby elk of some sort like just like running away from this wolf predator and like booking it and this this you know baby elk is like three weeks old not even and is like totally outrunning this wolf it's like damn they they truly build them like that huh they really don't yeah they don't get enough respect and and they are you know that's what i feel like i was trying to get is that people will go right up to an elk and not enough be intimidated. It's like, you need to back up because they are dangerous. They will, they will punch you and their feet are hooks, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, totally. And then you think about things like water Buffalo or hippo, like if you're in Africa, yeah, there's some really scary carnivores, but not quite as scary as what you're going to face with a hippo. Like <laughs> no, hippos deadly hippos kill a lot of people every year, right? They do. Yeah. They do. They're very aggressive. Yeah, you know, because like most herbivores, at least will be shy, but yeah, they're not. They they they're out to kill. No, they will chase you down and trample your ass for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, they're terrifying, uh, but also amazing. <laughs> like I can't, I can't help their homo- I, I I forgive their homicidal tendencies because you know how they're can very, you not look at them. They're very cute. They are. We we must so we must admit that they are uh, murderous and adorable. Yeah, for, for <laughs> those cutest killers on earth, you know. All right, I'm gonna Becky. I think we can. We we're gonna let you go. I think we're gonna see our way out of this stream. I'm gonna play the in, the outro music if that works for everybody. Becky, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about this. I'm sure we will have you back on, hopefully to talk about more hard science and not UFOs. But it was another banner week for UFOs, so we had to. Mm-hmm. Becky, oh no, I love talking about with you guys. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks. Bye. Actually, I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing this week. You know what? I've slept. I've slept so bad all week. (laughs) And it's really coming home to roost during this stream. Like my brain is just not here. (laughs) I don't, I I don't have an, an outro written in front of me, but I'm happy to off the cuff it. No, no. It's just, uh, 
We're good. We're good. We're going to go raid. That's I my outro. We are going to go raid. We're going to go raid. Uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to eat lunch. I'm going to I'm going to record an outro for this with lunch in my stomach. <laughs> I'm going to do an ad read that I didn't do yesterday that I was supposed to. And I'm going to get True. this podcast episode up and it's going to be okay. And we're going to start we're going to start talking what right, here's what we do. We tease we tease the next 3 weeks of cybers. Cuz we've yeah, got a stacked deck. <laughs> right? We've got um huh? we've got a lot of people coming. We have a lot of really cool, like, I'm honestly very excited about the next couple of weeks on, on cyber. Um, September has, is a very great month for me learning how to read again, um, through sheer force and requirement. And I'm really thankful for it, honestly. Um, so we're going to be, um, we're going to be reading or reading. We're going to be talking with, um, Brian Merchant, I think next week, right? Yep. Next week is new book. Brian Merchant, yep, which is about the Luddites and pushing back against big tech, uh, and is a big, thick history book. You think you know the Luddites? You do not. You don't know. I'm so excited to read this. It's real good. It's real good. Um, And then the week after that, um, we're talking. I'm totally blanking on on who wrote this book. Cory Doctorow. Cory Doctorow's book, Inshitification, talking about the Internet Con, actually, which is about Inshitification. It's about inshitification, excuse me, um, which if you don't know what that is, tune in in two weeks to find out, but also tune in next week to talk about Luddites with us. Yeah, very excited. And obviously we'll have Anna and Tim on next week as well, talk about their big scoop uh, that involves Operation Underground Railroads, Timothy Ballard in the Mormon Church. Uh, they've been working at it a long time, and I'm very excited to talk with them about it. Uh, and then after Dr. O, we're going to have Jeffrey Lewis on, who's also been on the show before. Um, he's got a new podcast out uh, that is about how, how we are all still alive. How is it that the nuclear weapons and the space debris and climate change has not killed us yet? Uh, it is a horrifying topic that he has given an upbeat spin. <laughs> um, and I am excited to talk to him about that. That'll be October 6th. Uh, so let's go raid another channel. How does that yeah, sound? I think we have. Yes, it's awkward. Awkward's underscore travel. Awesome. So. Well, thank you, everyone in chat, for coming and hanging out with us on this, like you know, return to streaming after taking a little a little breather. I'm gonna be. Uh, I'm gonna make sure I get more sleep before we stream next week. <laughs> I think, you know, this is a weekend of rest. Yes. I say being like, I have so much going on and I have to travel a lot, but that, that's how it goes. Thank you everybody for tuning in and we will see you next week. We will be back on again next week at 11 a.m. Eastern right here at twitch.tv forward slash vice. Thank you all for tuning in. Thank you for, thank you to Taylor and Becky for coming on and let's go raid awkwards underscore travel. Goodbye. Bye, everybody. guys. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. 
Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium.